And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Ward back to the program today for the second part of our interview. Lucy is a writer and former journalist, having written for The Guardian and The Independent. Today we continue our conversation about her debut book, The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus, which is published by One World Publications and distributed by Simon & Schuster. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us again. Let's get to the doctor of our title, and that's Thomas Dinsdale. He was born into a Quaker family, and that was not an advantage for a young person in England, was it? No, it was slightly less of a disadvantage than it had been a few decades earlier when the the Quakers in Britain were still really struggling, marginalized, even attacked, very much kind of outcasts within British society. They were nonconformists, they were dissenters, so they experienced all kinds of violence and, and isolation. By the time Thomas Dimsdale was born in 1712, there was much greater tolerance. He came from actually a relatively wealthy family, or at least very comfortable family. His father was a doctor, a surgeon. Thomas was born in a town called Epping in, in Essex. But Quakers, because of their own rules and restrictions, they faced limits on things that they could do. So they couldn't swear allegiance to the crown. They didn't swear oaths. And that meant that, for example, they couldn't attend the two English universities of Oxford and Cambridge. They couldn't become members of parliament. They weren't accepted into, for example, the associations such as the Royal College of Physicians Professional Association. So through their own beliefs, really, they they were still not accepted into really important areas of British society. They had a purity about them and, and they chose to maintain those rules. And that's what kept them out of these institutions. Again, something that is new that is threatening the current hegemony with the Church of England and the Catholic Church. That's right. I mean, the the Catholics too were also isolated from many institutions. It's just, yeah, you're not part of the established church. You're not playing the rules. You're not playing the game as everyone else is. So it produced, though, connections between Quakers that would prove incredibly helpful to Thomas Dimsdale. They had a very strong network of their own, especially the Quaker medical men, that did prove to be very significant in what happened to him later. Very, very important. They had strong bonds and they had strong bonds in business too, in that way that if you're kept out of and isolated from other parts of society, then you know you rely upon each other. He would find that his Quaker connections proved very useful to him, in fact, in this story. Now, while he wasn't the seventh son of a seventh son, he was an adept <laughs> doctor himself. He was a healer. How did he get started in inoculating people? It's not absolutely clear when he began inoculating. He learned to be a surgeon initially from his father. He worked alongside his father, helping out in in the parish in Epping. But then, unlike his father, he went and trained more formally. He trained at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, where he spent three or four years and would have have learned the skills of the surgeon and, and watched some very senior British English anatomist. So he really did actually learn very practically from the best of the best there. And he then went and set up in practice in a town, a market town called Hartford in the kind of next county to Essex, where he also had family. And he began practicing there. At this point, by the way, he took an an unusual step. He decided to get married, but he didn't marry within his Quaker faith. He'd been brought up as a very strict Quaker by his parents. And he married out 
And that was really quite a, a radical thing to do for him. And as a result, the Quaker meeting in Hartford sent people to essentially knock on his door and attempt to make him see reason. He was very polite to them, but he chose not to tell them that he'd made a mistake or in any way kind of apologise. And in the end, they gave up trying to get him to recognise that he'd, he'd taken the wrong step and they disowned him. Effectively, they chucked him out, the Quakers. But that didn't mean that he wasn't really in his heart and in his beliefs a Quaker all his life. He was. And in fact, he's buried in the Quaker burial ground. Anyway, he married out. And then very tragically for him, his first wife died and she died. They'd had no children and he was heartbroken. One of his friends in the Quaker community, a Quaker doctor, we've talked about these Quaker medical connections, a man called John Fothergill, another very, very important 18th century medical figure, suggested to him that he might want to be involved in the fight against the Jacobite. This was a fight that the English government was fighting against an attempt to remove the English king from the throne by the Jacobites, the Scots. And a Jacobite army led by Bonnie Prince Charlie was on its way down from Scotland, essentially marching on London. The British government army or the English government army wanted to, to push it back. And Thomas Dimsdale joined that army as an army doctor, marched with it up to the north of England, where the Jacobites went into retreat. It put, they pushed them back over the border into Scotland. It looks as if it may have been there that he first learned about inoculation, smallpox inoculation. And he came back to Hartford. Happy news. He met another wife who married again, his second wife. And he set up in practice again as a doctor and seems to have begun inoculating then. So this is in around um, 1745. So that was the beginning of his career in inoculation. And it was nice to see that while he was no longer formally a Quaker, they didn't shun him completely, that there was still tenderness in the association amongst the friends. Very much so. I think the idea was not a kind of outright isolation and rejection. I think that the mission with the Quakers was really to get him to sort of come round to realise that he shouldn't abandon the sect, the friends. But it wasn't, you know, as you say, to shun him, to freeze him out. And his social circle was so much connected with the Quakers that I suspect it meant that he married who he chose and he didn't go to the Quaker meeting. But was he by heart a Quaker? Absolutely, he was. And perhaps towards the end of his life, it may be that he returned, certainly with his third wife, who was a Quaker, he, he perhaps returned more to the faith. But yeah, there was never, never huge distance. He became interested in Sutton's method of the easier way of inoculating people against smallpox. Tell us a little bit about the present method of inoculating for the smallpox. So Thomas Dimsdale was practicing as, a, as an inoculator using this sort of not very helpful British method from 1745 onwards for about 20 years. And then he begins to hear, like other, as other doctors do, about this Daniel Sutton's method. Everybody's talking about it. All other doctors want to know exactly what he's doing. And Dimsdale's no different from others. He begins to hear these stories of, of how Daniel Sutton is going about it. And he recognizes this is a stripped down, simplified method. It's taking far less time. There's far less dietary and other preparation, less purging and all the rest of it. He knows Sutton's giving people some kind of powders, but he's pretty sure that, you know, they're not anything that he doesn't already know about. He also hears that Sutton is getting his patients to walk around in the cold air and not keeping them very, very warm after the inoculation. And Thomas Dinsdale 
hears about this. He's astonished, particularly by this keeping the patient cool aspect, but he tries it. He decides to introduce some of these changes with his own patient. Effectively, he's trialing the method. He's extremely fastidious as a kind of scientist, doctor, researcher, if you like, and he, he writes down everything he's doing. And sure enough, this method is remarkably effective. People recover more quickly, you know, fewer complications. Unlike Sutton, who, as I say, did not write up or publicise his methods, quite the reverse, Thomas Dimsdale writes a treatise, and it's called The Present Method of Inoculating for the Smallpox. He calls it the present method, not the Suttonian method, you notice. <laughs> and he does credit Sutton in a slightly backhanded way and without naming him at this point. He did name him in a later treatise. So he gives him a slightly patronising kind of hat tip, but he writes up this method. He explains how he's experimented. It's a very, very kind of classically 18th century document, the approach of an 18th century scientist. It's all about, you know, these are my observations. This is, I'm giving you what I've seen. If the facts change or somebody has a different idea, I'll, I'll accept that. And he publishes it in 1767. It's immediately very, very popular. And it goes very quickly into more editions. And eventually it goes to eight editions and is translated into French and various other languages. But yeah, it takes off really quickly. And it gives him a real name as the expert on inoculation. So not just in, in Britain, but abroad as well. So let's go across the channel and across much of the continent. We go to Prussia, and there's a little girl by the name of Zofie Frederica Augusta. And what does she have to do with our story? Well, <laughs> uh, as you say, she is a little Prussian princess with a what's a really a very confusing name because she is, in fact, the future Catherine the Great of Russia. Now, she has a very ambitious mother called Johanna, who is looking around for a suitable match for her daughter, to whom she can betroth her daughter. Her ambition essentially leads her to the Empress Elizabeth of Russia. Future Catherine, little Sophie, is brought to Elizabeth's attention. Now, Elizabeth has no children of her own, but her nephew, who will become Peter III of Russia, is her heir. But she needs to find him a wife so Sophie, as she still is, is summoned with a mother to Russia, to St. Petersburg, and she meets the Empress Elizabeth, and she is introduced to Peter, although she has actually met him once previously. He was 11 years old and already drinking beer at the point she first met him. So Elizabeth approves of this 14-year-old, really very bright and interesting young woman, and she is betrothed to Peter, and they marry and then there's a long period where Elizabeth remains on the throne. By the way, Catherine is, or Sophie, is taken into the Russian Orthodox Church where she's given the name Ekaterina. She and Peter have this long period where they are married, but he hasn't taken the throne. And their marriage is not really a success. It's a very difficult relationship. He's a volatile and complicated, difficult young man. He's had not the easiest upbringing. Anyway, he and Catherine really barely get on to the point where people get very worried that they're not producing any heirs. And there's a lot of encouragement to do that. She started having affairs, as has he. And then finally, Elizabeth dies and in 1762. Peter comes to the throne, Peter III of Russia. But he lasts just six months because he is unstable. He's not to be trusted on the throne, really. And his soldiers in particular are very concerned about his rule, as are others. And Catherine herself is very critical of him. So when it gets to the point that it looks as if he may choose to put her in a convent and marry his lover, she and some of his soldiers decide to overthrow him in a coup. And he is duly overthrown 
by Catherine, who marches ahead of a group of soldiers on a horse dressed in soldiers' attire, takes over, pronounces herself empress. Peter is locked up under guard and six days later is murdered by his guards. So Catherine is now empress, having usurped her own husband. She quickly has herself crowned and embarks on an extraordinary, very rapid and ambitious programme of reform, encompassing all sorts of aspects of, of Russian life. She's obviously got to establish her legitimacy very, very quickly. There's enormous amounts of interest in that, but just to skip forward... By 1768, she is far more stable on the throne, lots of reforming programmes in place. But at this point, the wave of epidemic smallpox has come to St. Petersburg. So she, in the spring of 1768, is effectively sheltering, kind of escaping this threat of smallpox by shuttling between the palaces outside of St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg being the capital of Russia. She's deeply worried about herself. She's never had smallpox. And she's also worried about her son and whether he will also succumb to it. He's quite sickly. This is her son, Paul and her heir. And so she's heard about inoculation. Russia is not closed off. Doctors in Russia do know about inoculation, but it isn't in widespread use there by any means. They're still very wary of it. And people in Russia, ordinary people, are extremely superstitious about the practice. And in fact, they believe that if you donate pus to someone else as part of this inoculation, that you will die. So she's up against widespread superstition within the country. There are not many doctors of any kind in Russia, and there certainly aren't many expert inoculators. So she makes a decision that she should have her son in inoculated. But she's concerned that if she does that and it goes wrong, people will think that potentially she's poisoned him. And she feels that she needs to go first. So she makes a decision that she will become the first monarch to be inoculated while on the throne. So now she has to find an inoculator. She has to find an expert. As I say, she needs to look outside Russia. And she looks to Britain because that's the country which is really the centre of expertise for this technology. And she's particularly keen to look to the West because she sees Russia as a European state. That's actually the opening sentence of her grand instruction, a document about reforming the legal system or the laws of Russia. Russia is a European state. She sees herself as an enlightened empress looking West. So inoculation is not only something that can protect her, of course, in the literal sense and her son against smallpox. It's something that can demonstrate her desire to be a Western, progressive, enlightened monarch. She instructs her ambassador in London and says, find me the top expert on inoculation in Britain. Previously, some in Russia had tried to treat smallpox with a bit of unicorn. <laughs> yeah, I found that absolutely extraordinary. There were folk methods in parts of Russia, obviously huge, huge country. And there were ways of treating smallpox through different folk methods, as well as the state's method, which was to address outbreaks of smallpox by using the police to enforce isolation and very much preventing people traveling. Um, people had to stay at home and not spread the disease, of course, and absolute bans on anyone with smallpox or connected with smallpox going near the court. There were also actually folk methods of inoculation as well in, in a few parts of Russia, even things like mixing up scabs with honey and then spreading it on the skin. So Russia, there were different ways of dealing with the disease and even of inoculating, but nothing kind of organised and coherent. And as I say, there was only really one part of the empire in Livonia, in the far west of the empire, where there were some people inoculating, but it wasn't really broadly in use. And that's why she turned outside of her own empire to look for an expert. She was very cognizant of public opinion 
and her role in shaping it, and she knew it would go much better if she led by example rather than by fiat. This is one of the most extraordinary parts of this story and of my kind of understanding of her and appreciation of her as a political leader, that she recognized that probably almost more than in any other case, if you are trying to persuade people to undergo a medical procedure, and the obvious point being this isn't about treating something, this is about forestalling something, this is a prophylactic procedure, you need to do that by trust and persuasion, and as she recognized, by example. And so she saw really that, if you like, she could make not so much political capital for herself, that that was the case. She saw she could gain politically, particularly almost outside Russia. But she saw that if she was to overcome the level of superstition, quite specific superstition about inoculation within Russia, the way to do that was to demonstrate that she would undergo this procedure, but also that she would use it on her own child. Because that is the ultimate test, isn't it? If you're willing to do something to the person that you love most in the world, then you're really offering up your own personal experience to your people and saying, you know, this is the best I can do to show you that I have faith in this. And that's what she decided to do. And in fact, what she really wanted to do was to have her own son inoculated from herself. So from her own pustules to use that live viral matter to inoculate her son. In fact, that couldn't happen just because he became ill in the middle and his inoculation had to be delayed. But that was her plan. So she really had a a very direct plan to use her body, her son's body, you know, her own actions as a specific example. And in fact, I did find note of a conversation that she had with Thomas Dinsdale while she was recovering from her inoculation. And I don't think it's been seen before. I've never seen it mentioned anywhere. And it's such an interesting insight into her understanding of her leadership. She's walking in the gardens of a palace called Sarskoya Selo, which is just outside St. Petersburg, where she recuperated after her inoculation. And she's getting much better. And she's talking to Thomas Dimsdale and they meet some peasants who live close to the palace. And she explains to him that she's paying them. She's giving them money to be inoculated. And she laughs that, in fact, they've kind of upped the price. And initially she was giving them one ruble per head for doing it. And now they're asking for double that. And, you know, which is quite interesting. She's laughing at herself. But But also she explains to him that even though she's an autocrat, that she believes that persuasion is a better tool than kind of force, than just demanding that people do this. She says, I'm an autocrat and I could make anybody do anything. But in this case, she recognizes that, in fact, generally, she recognizes the power of persuasion as a tool. And this is very early in her reign. And, you know, all rulers become more autocratic, perhaps, as as time goes on. But it's just an interesting window on her political approach, I think. So it's, it's specific to inoculation, but also a more general metaphor, I suppose, for her idea of how she should rule. Well, that is a lesson the contemporary leadership of Russia could take to heart right now as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's also a sort of interesting point that we've gone through the big discussions around compulsion um, when it comes to, obviously, COVID vaccine and She had that option of introducing compulsion, and she didn't take it. Interesting. Once again, we return to Daniel Sutton, who was approached to help bring inoculation to Russia, but his uh, mercenary ways did him in. (laughs) I know, poor old Daniel. He keeps trying to take over the book, doesn't he? He's such a great figure, that great character. Rumor has it, there were certainly people saying that he was approached and that he asked for, I think it was £6,000, and asked for money, and he wasn't chosen. He is not 
the person, despite his profile and his enormous earnings in having kind of developed the system, he's not the man that was chosen for this high profile exercise. And it may also have been because, you know, in his dash to make money, he was running what was seen to be rather disorderly inoculation houses where there were, you know, people who were not behaving and were drinking and behaving a bit riotously while they were waiting to recover from their inoculation. So yeah, he never got the gig, I'm afraid. And so then Dr. Dimsdale steps in. That's right. Well, again, back to the Quakers. So I mentioned that Catherine had given her ambassador, Count Moussen Pushkin, his ambassador in London, the task of finding her the top expert to inoculate her. And he already knew Dr. John Fothergill, who we've mentioned, the Quaker physician, very, very well-connected man. And of course, he is a friend of Thomas Dimsdale. So Thomas Dimsdale is at his surgery in Hartford in July 1768, when a horseman rides up one evening and says, you need to come and meet the Russian ambassador in London. So Thomas can't really say no. So he comes to London and he goes to his friend John Fothergill's house in Bloomsbury. And there is the Russian ambassador who says, we want to introduce inoculation into Russia. We have this big project and we'd like you to come and do it. And Thomas Dimsdale thinks for a while. And then he says, well, you know, I'm 56 and I have seven children and and I have a very busy practice. I have a lot of well-paying clients. And uh, he did a lot of inoculating the poor as well, but he was very well off from his work with much wealthier people. So he sort of says no. (laughs) And then goes back home to his practice in the countryside of Hertfordshire. And this message goes back to Catherine And then a a messenger rides very, very fast back from St. Petersburg and they call Thomas Dimsdale back to meet the Russian ambassador again. And he's told that this is actually a secret mission to inoculate the Empress of Russia herself and her son. Or they're going to keep secret that it's her that will be inoculated. They'll publicise the fact or it will be known that he's going to inoculate her son. And when he's told that, he says it's his duty to accept. And so he says, okay. I will. I'll go to Russia. I'll take this on. But he doesn't, unlike Sutton, he doesn't set a fee for his work. He doesn't ever set a price. And that's something that proves to be, even if it wasn't a deliberate strategy, it does actually prove to be something he will by no means regret in the future. And then within two weeks or something, he is setting off in a fast carriage, leaving Britain and heading around 1,700 miles overland along the shore of the Baltic to St. Petersburg. Now, I think we should leave the rest of the story to the reader. We don't want to ruin the fabulous relationship that develops between Catherine the Great and Dr. Dimsdale. But you yourself have received some auspicious news from a source named Pushkin. I have, yeah. I'm I'm extremely honored because my book, The Empress and the English Doctor, has just been shortlisted for the Pushkin House Book Prize. And Pushkin House is the Russian cultural organization in Britain. It's based in London. It's not anything to do with the Russian state or the present regime. It's a cultural center. It's an independent charity. It works to spread word of Russian and Russian language culture. It's currently running a lot of programs to critique the war that's going on in Ukraine and doing some amazing work there. It's a really really extraordinary centre. It runs very, very interesting talks. And yes, I'm very, very honoured to have been shortlisted. There are some absolutely superb books on that list. It's wonderful of them to include this book, my book on it. Now, of course, I guess the elephant also sitting in the room is you did much of this work during our own epidemic of COVID-19. That's right. I did. I promise you, proposed this book before COVID. I pitched it to my agent in November 2019. 
when none of us knew about COVID. And the book went to publishers in February 2020. One of them, One World, my wonderful publisher, were interested in it. And I signed the contract with them on, I think it was the 6th of April, which was more or less exactly as England uh, or Great Britain went into lockdown. Like everybody, I was at home. It's just me, my family, my dogs and my computer and allowed out for an hour of exercise a day. I mean, that's fine. I suppose that's kind of what writing's like anyway. <laughs> but the really, really difficult, challenging aspect of that, of course, was that I couldn't go and visit archives in real life, if you like. Everything closed. Archives, libraries, people I might have gone to talk to, then it was going to be much harder. You know, everything just kind of clanged shut. And of course, I'm not the only person. And it's by far the least of the worries of, you know, that that really, really difficult time. But it was, yeah, strange and disappointing and sad. But obviously, it had a kind of strange benefit in some ways because I researched and wrote the book against the background of a modern pandemic and it really gave me an extraordinary kind of counterpoint to what I was reading about and probably a greater empathy for what people who again I was reading about from you know 300 years previously in my own county and beyond were were going through. Smallpox is a radically different virus, absolutely horrific, far, far more virulent but some of those experiences of, you know, loss and mourning and grief, of course, carry, you know, over the centuries. And those we talked about the economic impacts that was incredibly interesting as a parallel, you know, just this sense of a, a of a collective fear and of the power of science and of medicine to address that. There were many obvious parallels. So it gave this kind of incredible resonance to so many of the issues. I mean, honestly, and sometimes just utterly literal ones. I, I mentioned we talked about the the debates in France in particular around risk and about reason and what would a rational person do in terms of inoculation. And so much of it just seemed to be very familiar once vaccines against COVID were developed. You know, I really was hearing some of the same debates and arguments that had been rehearsed, you know, 250 plus years ago. And that was fascinating. You know, there really is some of the impulses we have and instincts around inoculation, vaccination just just don't change. Um, so that was remarkable. Yeah. There's the, the saying that history may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. I just wish it weren't yeah. like ridiculous doggerel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was thinking often of those kind of things of, you know, you just don't want to come out with those cliches, but it really did feel there were echoes, put it that way. To go back to my experience of you know, not being able to go and rummage around in the National Archives or, or elsewhere, I was forced to go online. And I found that when you're made to do something, you know, you you make the most of it. It, it helps. I'm, my background is as a journalist, and I really just love foraging about finding things. The more difficult you make it for me, the more determined I am to, to see what I can find. And, and actually, in terms of uh, medical history, there is a remarkable amount of digitized archival material. If you go to the Royal College of Physicians or the Royal Society Wellcome Trust, there are absolute treasure troves of incredible stuff from the 18th century. And, you know, you can go back to these primary sources, you can read these treaties um, written by doctors, inoculators, you can get a sense of the, you know, real-time feeling of the excitement and of the development and of what they're observing. And I actually really valued that. I was able to do that very sort of intensely and just get into their world. And Russian archives also proved to be 
actually incredibly helpful Russian state archives. And fortunately, Russian state archives also included the correspondence of British ambassadors in Russia back to London. And so I was able to read these incredible dispatches from our man in St. Petersburg, if you like, going back to London, explaining how anxious everybody was and how worried about this inoculation where a British subject was coming to inoculate the Empress of Russia and everybody's risking their life and George III's involved and you know so all of that tension all these this amazing correspondence was was there to read so I was fortunate and finally and most importantly I had access to the Dimsdale family papers so Thomas Dimsdale's descendants from whom I originally by just bumping into one of them in a school playground got this story (laughs) gave me access remarkably to the family's papers. Now, they some of these have been seen by academics before, but they really are incredible. And they include letters between Thomas and Catherine the Great. They include his medical notes about her, you know, his day-by-day account of her recovery from her inoculation, you know, everything from her purges to her periods, you name it, it's all there in his handwriting. And even her the health questionnaire he gave her before he decided to go ahead with the inoculation, which is you know the kind of thing really we get if we go to the doctors here you know so tell me how many units of alcohol you drink a week and you know what's your diet like and your general health and what about sleep and you know she answered it there's all her handwriting it's her answering in French you know well I get up very early I have kind of she got headaches from hard work she was incredibly abstemious she rose about five in the morning you know worked really hard she ate a very modest diet actually yeah so there's all kinds of extraordinary information there that I was very, very lucky to have. And again, that feeling of connection, these direct documents that just took me back to that period. What was it like for you working on a book length project as opposed to the journalism that you had been? <laughs> well, well, writing over 100,000 words rather than 500. <laughs> it's a really good question. I mean, you know, you get your head in the right place and you approach it differently, of course. And many of the skills are the same in terms of, you know, I like to think that I researched accurately and I source things and I dig around. So in that respect, just a much grander version of what one might do for an investigative story. But my poor editor, I said to him, right, I'm going to send you a chapter at a time and you are going to make me do this. And so in other words, I enforce deadlines. I can't work without deadlines like any journalist. So I would set myself a timescale to write a chapter and I would get that to him you know, made myself do it. So it was a kind of, not that I'm remotely comparing myself with Charles Dickens, but it was that Dickensian approach of, you know, it was as if I was publishing a chapter at a time. And of course, I did go back and, you know, edit a bit. But basically, I tried to get everything the best it could be and then send it off. And that's how I made myself work. Otherwise, if I hadn't done that, I'd have tried to write it all the night before, because that's what journalists do. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you find your own coping strategies, don't you? I did write it probably fairly fast because again that's journalism but spend a lot of time on the research but I look back and think yes quite surprised I managed to do that (laughs) it's 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 not uh, not what I'm used to but the process hasn't scared you off from doing it again has it no I'd love to write another book although I think it's one of those things where you merrily say that and then you're back in it and then you're kicking yourself you know uh, when you're locked in your room again and there isn't even a pandemic to keep you there no in fact I'm interested in a story that is connected to this book it's a story that I came across while researching this it's connected slightly again to Thomas Dimsdale still in the 18th century and um, very much hoping that I can interest someone again in, in that book well we'd love to hear more about it if it comes to fruition 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Lucy, I want to thank you so much for sharing this much time with us. It's, it's a fabulous book and a tale well told, as they say. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for asking about it, and particularly for your interest in that context of the medical history here, because it's just been so overlooked. And it's even specialists in immunology and virology don't know about inoculation and the pre-gener history. And I just really want it to be known. All those people, those men and women that worked on this, I just want them to get the credit they deserve. Thank you so much. And we look forward to, to talking to you again in maybe a few years' time. Thank you. Thank you. Lucy Ward is the author of The Empress and the English Doctor, How Catherine the Great Defied a Deadly Virus which is published by One World Publications and distributed by Simon & Schuster. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.